Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 40 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about one of the most common kinds of internal resistance that arises within us when we begin to consider practicing our passions. It's the feeling that we are not ready yet, that we have to somehow grow more or you know, be more transformed or feel more like we've arrived. By the end of this conversation, you'll be wanting to get started sooner rather than later on the living of your passions. Before we get going, though, I have a huge announcement. The Lovable Study Experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with this year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an indiv- a new, brand new individual and group study guide for reading through Lovable, it's all available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. You'll also get a free sample of Lovable, and then each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast into my every other week blog post. And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever Books are sold in paperback, digital, and audio, so check it out wherever you like to buy books. All right, onward. Our internal resistance to practicing our passions takes many forms. Today, we're going to tackle one of the most common. Thanks, as always, for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 39 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled The Blessing of Being Unfinished. In recent weeks, we've been honing in on the specific forms of resistance that arise when we consider practicing our passions, and we've been getting increasingly specific. For instance, we first tackled the broad prohibition we feel against wanting anything good for ourselves, and then we focused on the general discouragement we receive from the voice of shame. Then we talked about the outdated mental rules that keep us focused on barriers that may not even exist. This week, we're going to focus on the belief that we need to have arrived first before we can start practicing our passions. Before we get into this week's topic, though, let's check in about those previous weeks. What internal resistance have you been noticing? What are your mental rules that get in the way of practicing your passions? What is one of your life sentences, the one idea about how you and the world work that says you can't get started or keeps you focused on all the wrong things? And perhaps even more importantly, in recent weeks, as you've been listening for and questioning the voice of shame and talking with your people about the resistance you feel, what progress are you making? What clarity are you achieving? about your passions. And while you're thinking about what you want to share, um, I practiced last week's practice. Um, I've practiced it many times before. I discover sort of new new forms of resistance each time. 
um, new life sentences that sort of get in the way of me um, practicing my passions um, with a greatest sense of joy and freedom. And, uh, and so last week as I was practicing this, um, the thing that I noticed, the mental rule that I noticed that tethers me to sort of an imaginary wall um, was the idea that it's never okay to disappoint your people. <laughs> um, and if as soon as that mental rule takes hold, um, you've eliminated so many potential options for yourself because it is uh, almost impossible to act in, decisively in any way in the world without disappointing somebody, right? If you've got a cry, I remember um, first giving lectures at Penn State to large, um, large classes, 100, 150, you know, freshmen and sophomores. And uh, at the end of the semester, I'd get feedback, written feedback from them. And half the class would say I went too fast. And half the class would say I went too slow. And half the class would say they wanted me to, to speak up. And half the class said it was just right. And it sort of started to dawn on me, like, oh, you're always going to disappoint somebody um, if you act decisively. Uh, but, and so so to me, the, the, the falsehood in that mental rule that as I was thinking about it, it was actually that your people are the people you can disappoint. <laughs> um, that's sort of what defines a place of belonging. A place of belonging is a place where um, your people can go, oh, I, I expected you to do that. I was hoping you would do that. But I see, I see that you are being faithful to your truest self and I want to support that. Um, and so actually it's the, your people are specifically the people who will walk alongside you as you are somewhat disappointing. Um, and so I, I was sort of noticing that this week and, um, and beginning to take a, a survey of what are all the things I'm doing in my life, specifically, primarily, just so I don't disappoint people. And how, how, how is that limiting kind of where I want to be heading and, um, and, and what, what might it look like if I did that differently? So that's, that was the result of my exercise for the week and would be curious to hear um, what forms of resistance are you noticing um, and what clarity are you gaining about how you want to practice your passions? Joshua writes, resistance, that I should be doing something that makes more money. It's irresponsible to quote, waste time on it. Joshua, that is one of the most common forms of resistance and uh, it's so important that you named it because there's a bunch of people who are listening in who feel that too. Um, in fact, uh, next week's blog post of mine where I write about how I came to the conclusion to offer all of this uh, additional study content for free is, is specifically deals with that issue, that, that sense that I should be doing something to make more money with this. Um, uh, <laughs> if you, for those of you who are listening, if you haven't seen the movie Christopher Robin yet, um, go, go see it. Uh, this is specifically the form of resistance that the movie deals with, and one of the common refrains in the movie is... Um, doing nothing leads to the very best of something. Um, and so the movie is very much about challenging this form of resistance that says, I always need to be productive. Um, I always need to be able to identify um, an outcome. And oftentimes the outcome better be financial. Um, now, this is an important point, Joshua, to also talk about how, you know, and I say this all the time when I, I talk to parents about um, helping their kids identify what their passions are. Um, and one of the things I commonly say is, but passion must always be balanced with a paycheck. Um, the first task of life is to launch and be independent um, and to be able to support oneself and, um, and, and figuring out how to do that while also being faithful to our passions. 
So there's sort of a dance going on there. Um, money is a reality of life, um, but if we if if we believe that it is the primary um, and the only really valuable way to spend our time, then that very much will sidetrack us from attending to our passions. And so we want to um, we want to confront that sort of resistance. Thanks for naming it. Stephanie writes, good morning, everyone. So good to be here. I've looked forward to this one all week. This is relevant as I'm in a group that is studying Mark Batterson's book and study guide called If, trading your if-only regrets and trading them for the what-if possibilities. Yeah, um, we in Lovable focus a lot on this sort of dance that we do internally between listening to the voice of shame and listening to the voice of grace. And the voice of shame is rooted in beliefs about scarcity, right? If only I had that, there's only so much of that to go around and I've missed out on it. Um, whereas the voice of grace is rooted in the idea of abundance. Well, what if? What if there's um, infinite joy to be had by everybody? What if everybody gets to do what they want um, and love? Um, what, if, what if things are better than I can possibly imagine that they are? Um, and so we want to be paying attention to, I think, those, um, that tendency to be rooted in a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. Um, and it sort of goes back to what Joshua was saying, that if we're rooted in a scarcity mindset, it's, I've got to accumulate as much money as I can right now because it might run out. Um, but if we're rooted in an abundance mindset, we can say, I need as much money as I need for right now, <laughs> but uh, I can trust that that in the future I will also then have enough money for for then, and then I can begin to focus on um, other forms of abundance in my life. So, um, so yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Those are that, that sort of shame and grace, scarcity and abundance, if only versus what if. This is sort of the dance that is constantly happening inside. And I don't think we, I don't think we ever end the dance. I don't think we eliminate it. I think we dance with it. Um, and we try to choose which partner we're dancing with as much as possible. Clements writes, yes, Facebook Live doesn't work so good for me, but sticking to the podcast, but it's very nice to be a part of a community. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm glad, I'm glad that, uh, that we have the recordings recorded for you and edited, Clements, so that you can enjoy them. And we'll just take you on Facebook Live whenever we can get you. So glad to have you here. And so as you continue to sort of think about what you want to share, you know, I think something that's important to say is this idea of, you know, resistance to practicing our passions and the increased clarity that we're getting about our passions in, in these early weeks of these months, uh, th those go hand in hand. I think as we gain more clarity, our resistance actually increases. Um, as we get more clear about what we want to do and it becomes more real, then I think we see our resistance increase alongside of that. Um, and so that's why we're paying so much attention to clarifying what our passions are, but also noticing the resistance that is arising. Stephanie writes, I find that to be so true, Kelly. Thank you for putting language around that res around that resistance comes with more clarity. I feel that as my passion for writing, coaching, and speaking becomes clearer, I feel more fear that if I fail at it, something I really love, the pain might be too intense and that will be worse, which I know is a lie, but the feeling is so real. Yeah, Stephanie, so um, there's a lot of truth in it. And as you said, there's sort of some extra fear that is unneeded in that. And the, and the truth in it, I think, is that when we are living our life from our false self, right, whether it's, as Brenda said, to not 
um, upset people, or as I said, not to disappoint people, or as Joshua said, in order to make more money, when we're living from our false self, there's much less at risk. Because deep down we know, if people if people don't respond well to this false self, they're not really shaming me. They're shaming the self that I'm sort of using as a protection. Um, I, I can handle that. Shaming my true self, now that is raw and vulnerable. Um, and our, practice, our, our passions arise from our true self. So as we start practicing our true passions, um, we are vulnerable. We're raw. And when people don't respond well to it, it, it does hurt more. Um, and so there is a real sense of, of risk there. Um, but there's also that's, that's where the growth happens, right? That's where the growth happens. That's where the willingness to suffer for the passions happens. I love doing this so much, I'm willing to withstand the trolls. <laughs> I love doing this so much, I'm willing to withstand some lean years where, you know, I can pay the bills, but there's not a lot left over at the end of the day. Um, I love doing this so much that when I fail, I figure out how to fail better next time. Um, that's, that's, that's the beauty of practicing a passion, isn't that it is, is without risk or pain or hardship, um, but there's a faithfulness to it because it's, it's arising from who you truly are. Brenda writes, resistance. If I word things perfectly or keep silent at certain times, there won't be any unpleasant conversations between family members, right? Boy, yeah, there's so much in there, isn't there? Um, you're like basically reading my, my internal world for much of my life, um, so I can relate to it. I mean, there's, there's things, you know, number one, Unpleasant conversations between family members is are bad. That's a belief that's in there. Um, it's my job to sort of uh, minimize the possibility of those sorts of moments. Um, and the way that I do so is to be sort of perfect, kind of dance around everybody's triggers and buttons and, um, or just if I can't, you know, if I can't do that just to stay silent. Um, and it's not to say that there aren't situations where that's wise, you know, um, situations where it's wise to sort of stay silent. But when you when those rules sort of become the guideline for living, your voice gets either completely muted or lost as you sort of take on a voice that you hope will will minimize conflict. And and the reality is when we practice our passions. Um, you know, again, when we do so decisively, it's not going to make sense to everybody. Not everybody's going to understand it. Um, not everyone will be thrilled with it. <laughs> um, and that's why we talk, when we talk about how belonging and purpose fit together. As we begin pursuing our purpose by practicing our passions, we get greater clarity about the people we belong to. Um, because the people we belong to are the folks who um, probably are a little less surprised when our true voice gets to gets expressed in what we do um, and are supportive even when they are surprised. So, um, so that is a way of clarifying that. And we oftentimes don't find that belonging in fam within, you know, immediate family. Um, and that can be hard, but I uh, appreciate you sharing that, Brenda. Thank you. A lot of us need to hear that. Carrie Lynn writes, it's such good news. It's hard to trust sometimes. Staying in the moment and remembering that truth leads to a deep shift in my experience of life at the time. It is getting easier the more I do it. I finally realized it wasn't that I wanted others to see me as good enough. It was that I was good enough and had to learn to trust that for myself, exclamation point. Remembering I, I am where I belong, doing what I am supposed to be doing because life is a journey 
And how else do I learn but to move towards something in order to know what it is I really want? Trusting that voice that says I'm lovable. I am enough. I am where I belong. I am here for a reason. With that mindset, I always see what it is I am there to see. It is surprising sometimes what that thing is. One of the more common experiences, once you begin to um, let that voice of shame dissipate, once you begin to release the fears, once you begin to settle in and listen for the voice of grace, trust that you're enough, trust you, you are where you belong, trust that you're here for a reason and that you might actually be on the scent of it, um, the, the, the experience oftentimes is a little bit of surprise, um, is oh that's what i'm here to do it's a create it's all it feels like the creative process you know sometimes when i'm writing and i thought the the, the piece was going to go in one direction and all of a sudden it's like oh no that's the direction it's supposed to go um there is a sense of surprise um and that's the beauty of it you really get a sense that oh i'm not just sort of trying to craft a life that i've always wanted in a sense um but the life I've always wanted is trying to craft me, is, is trying to, to remind me where I want to go. And I'm a little bit surprised by it when that happens. It's just a, um, it's a pretty cool experience when it happens, but it can only happen in that place of stillness and silence where you're truly listening for that voice of grace within. Stephanie writes, getting your lovable study experience has been a dream come true. Thanks so much for putting this together. I look forward to starting a study group this fall. Life changing. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that, Stephanie. Um, you know, one of the things I have heard about lovable, one of the more common things I've heard, and an author couldn't be more happy to hear this, um, is I don't ever read books twice, but as soon as I finish lovable, I start it over. And, and I feel like this study experience is, is sort of designed for, for that, you know, for, for wanting to dig deeper, see what else you can get out of it. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to get it to you. And, um, and again, if, if you're listening, that's at uh, drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Um, totally free. Go check it out. Ann writes, yes, thanks so much for providing us with the lovable study experience. This is a book I want to study and reread more than twice. Oh my goodness. Like I said, Ann, that's, as, as a writer and an author, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't be more thrilled to hear that. So uh, I'm so glad to, to hear it. So I, yeah, I really, I do think, I think that this week's reading, this next reading is, is truly an extension of this whole conversation. Um, last week, for instance, we were talking about um, one of the more common forms of resistance or mental rules that sort of springs up um, when we start to think about practicing our passions is, I can't start now. I, I'm an imposter. I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so we talked about that a little bit last week, but we're going to spend really the rest of, of this hour um, unpacking that, digesting that. Um, and uh, so let's get into that now. Um, we're going to focus on this one particular thought that keeps most of us from even getting started practicing our passions. It's week 39 of the year of listening, loving, and living, and it's entitled The Blessing of Being Unfinished. It happens almost every Monday morning. Somewhere in the midst of my commute to the office, I start to review the weekend. Occasionally, I'm richly satisfied by the collection of moments and memories bridging the gap between work weeks. But the truth is, most Mondays, I end up asking myself, how did I begin the weekend with such good intentions, and how did my priorities get so out of whack so quickly? A couple of months ago, on a holiday Monday, I received an answer to that question. For several weeks, we've been assembling a trailer for our van. My wife and I are not particularly talented mechanics, so the going had been slow. 
but old friends had come to town for the weekend and they were helping us put the finishing touches on it. Finally, the last wire was spliced and the last nut was turned. My friend rolled the trailer to the rear of the van to attach it, but stopped short when he got there. You don't have a hitch on your van, he said. You'll need to buy one and have it installed. This had not occurred to us. Like I said, we are not exactly mechanical geniuses. Our shoulders were slumping in defeat when our other friend observed, well, that's the way of projects, they're never finished. That's the way of projects, and that's the way of life. The problem isn't that our priorities are out of whack. Indeed, most people's priorities are soundly intact. Most of us want really good things. We want to put people before projects and love before languishing. The problem with our priorities isn't that they are wrong. The problem with our priorities is that they're on hold. We don't get started on them because we're always trying to finish something else first. We live the myth that getting things done, making everything neat, tidy, and over is possible. We figure we'll start playing when the work is finished. We postpone our joy. We plan to live passionately after we are done living productively. We want to wrestle with the kids but wind up wrestling with our email inbox. We want to play in the yard but wind up working in the yard. We want to just be in the space but instead we end up tidying our spaces. We just want to breathe but we wind up losing our breath. We press pause on our most treasured priorities because our digital projects aren't finished yet. We want to catch up with a friend but instead we catch up on our television shows. We want to pay attention to our kids but instead we pay attention to Facebook Messenger. We wind up playing words with friends instead of speaking words to the friend next door. But most importantly, we plan to start risking when our hearts feel finally finished. We tend to think of our hearts as a project like any other. We have a list of things we think must be accomplished inside of us before we can start taking risks outside of us. We think, once I'm more confident, I'll start dating. Once I'm more patient, I'll have children. Once my insides look as orderly as everyone else looks on the outside, I'll follow my heart and my passion and start doing the things I want to do in the world. If I read one more book, I'll finally be wise enough to start a blog. If I go to one more conference, I'll finally understand enough to start my business. If I can just learn to relax a little more, I'll have enough strength to step out and try. So, to live the things we love, we have to live them with our hearts feeling a little unfinished. May we give our projects and ourselves permission to be unfinished. Then, with the time we'd normally spend trying to finish things or better ourselves, let's love the things we've been wanting to love, do the things we've been wanting to do, and live the things we've been wanting to live. Our time here is short. The blessing of living unfinished is the opportunity to fill it up with what matters most to us. So that is uh, the reading for this week. And it really, it takes that idea of imposter syndrome, which we talked about last week, um, and, and I talked last week about how one of the ways I now commonly challenge the imposter syndrome when I feel it or the, when I see it in other people, whether clinically or whatever, is I used to try to convince myself and other people that, that I wasn't an imposter. They weren't an imposter. No, you've arrived. You know, your internal projects are finished enough. Go ahead. And, um, and, and these days it's the opposite. It's, yeah, everybody's an imposter. <clears throat> None of us are finished. None of us have got it figured out. And, uh, and let's get started anyways. Um, let's get rolling. You don't need to, to finish anything else internally in order to get doing what you want to be doing with your life. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then sort of just embrace the idea that I'm unfinished and I'm an imposter and we all are, even though not many people will admit it and not many people see that, um, that on the outside. So um, as we think through this, um, reactions, what do you tell yourself must happen before you start practicing your passion. Um, 
You know, is it that you need to take a writing course before writing the book you want to write? Do you need to do more research before starting the business? Um, <laughs> there is, uh, if anyone can remember, I'm not going to remember his name, an Asian man who um, uh, was sort of everywhere for a while a couple of years ago. I don't know what he's up to now, but he uh, he, he had this great story where he, he talked about how he uh, his wife was pregnant. Um, he quit his... his um, his position at a Fortune 500 company because he'd always wanted to follow his passion and start his own business. And she said, I, you know, I give you six months to do it, go for it. And uh, he was in a meeting with um, people who he was going to be trying to raise capital from. And he thought this was going to be the big meeting that would sort of launch his, uh, his project. And, uh, and they, they said no to him. And he went home full of rejection, completely ashamed, giving up, hopeless, and told his wife he was done. And she said, no, you've got four more months, go out and do it. I'm sort of paraphrasing this. And, uh, and so what he decided he needed to do was he needed to learn how to handle rejection. So he, 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 he started a rejection project where he went out of his way to get rejected um, 100 times in 100 days and he recorded the project. Um, and that actually ended up being the thing that sort of brought him into the public eye. But he'd do crazy things like he'd walk into a um, a Krispy Kreme and he'd, he'd try to get rejected. He'd say, I need, I need donuts in the shape of the Olympic rings. And um, the person would say, well, you know, um, he'd expect to be rejected. And, and typically the person would not reject him. He'd say, well, remind me, what, what do those look like? What's the color? And then he'd try again to get rejected. They'd say like, well, when do you need it by? He'd say, I need it within 50 minutes. And they say, all right, we'll, we'll get it done for you. And they did. Um, so he went through this project of, of learning how to be rejected, um, learning how to be sort of unfinished, um, learning learning how to not have it all figured out. Um, and I think that this, that's what this is all about this week, is how do I move forward even if I don't have it all figured out? Anne writes, yes, that's how I feel. I'm an imposter in that area. I can't do that. I don't know how. I'm not an expert. And Brenda writes, okay, now this reading hit my nerve. <laughs> and Deb F. writes, hitting a lot of nerves today. Laugh out loud. Um, all right, so folks, I think the fact that like, that this, this imposter syndrome idea sort of um, bubbled up to the surface last week and that I had it on tap to talk about this week and now it's really hitting nerves means that we are sort of right in the center of a huge pocket of resistance that a lot of us feel um, towards um, uh, practicing our passions. As you're thinking about um, kind of what more you want to say about that, um, <laughs> I had an experience so several weeks ago, we, my, my oldest currently says that his passion is comedy and stand-up and improv, and uh, we want to encourage that while encouraging the need to eventually um, earn a paycheck. And, uh, and so for his eighth grade graduation party, we took him to Second City in the city for um, a night of improv. And uh, I was reminded, actually, of a quote... Uh, I put in Lovable by Stephen Colbert, and I've got it here. At the age of 10, sage and comedian Stephen Colbert experienced enough tragedy for a lifetime when his father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash. His other siblings were already grown and gone, leaving him alone with his mother. According to Colbert, he was saved from his grief by a number of blessings, including his mother's love, his faith, and his love for books, but mostly he was saved by improvisational comedy. Before his first night on a professional stage, Second City director Jeff Michalski told him, you have to learn to love the bomb. The key to improv 
The key to getting up on stage without a script, the key to making art in the midst of the mess, is learning to love the mess. You have to embrace the fear of screwing up and the pain of failure. Colbert says, the discomfort and the wishing that it would end that comes around you. I would do things like that and just breathe it in. Nope, can't kill me. This thing can't kill me. Through improv, Colbert learned how to accept suffering. You have to learn to love the bomb. I think part of imposter syndrome is I'm up. It, it, we're wanting we're wanting all of our ducks in a row to guarantee that we don't bomb, <laughs> right? Like if I if I do this thing and I am the real deal and I I finally arrived, then it'll it'll work out and I won't have to go through the pain of bombing. Um, and sitting there with Aiden watching these comedians do this this improv where they've got sort of mostly a script for two of the acts and then the third act is completely improv. It's by far the most fun act. Um, because you see them fearlessly being, I mean, they are not afraid to be imposters up there. They're not afraid to say, we have no idea what we're doing. We're making it up as we go. Um, anything is fair game. Uh, and what they know is that they have a passion for humor and that just keeps guiding them. Every time they bomb, they, they continue, they look back at the humor and they go for it. And I think that's about what our passion is about is, um, yep, I'm an imposter. I don't have it all figured out. Um, I'm gonna bomb, but I'm gonna keep my eye on that passion. I'm just gonna keep moving towards it. Um, and I'm gonna fail better, you know, fail better next time. Um, Deb F writes, my gig is to say, I will get to my passion as soon as dot, dot, dot. My house is in order. I've lost weight. If relationships in my extended family have healed, <laughs> when Mercury is no longer in retrograde, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I need to learn to love the mess as it is. That's that's so well said, Deb. I mean, and I love the way you tacked on when Mercury is no longer in retrograde because uh, it just it just illustrates that we'll latch on to anything, right? Um, uh, oh no, like I actually don't think I have anything in the way of me doing that thing today. Um, oh, but the dog needs the dog needs to be groomed, right? Oh yeah, I, I got to go get the dog groomed because you know until the dog's groomed, everything isn't isn't done. I have other responsibilities. Um, Great examples, thank you for sharing that. Stephanie writes, love that rejection story. It's like building a resiliency plan. I think knowing that I'm not going to be liked by some, my passions won't be received well by all, but there will be even a few that do, and that will be worth it. Because if I don't, the regret of the shoulda, coulda, wouldas are worse. I actually, that's a great way to reframe it, Stephanie, is that um, you know what, what this man did was go out of his way to move towards rejection. Um, knowing that resiliency doesn't come with success. Resiliency comes with failure, with bombing, with um, not having it all figured out and making mistakes and then continuing on. Now, that's, what, that's what resilience is, right? Things aren't going well and I continue on. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. He built, he had a resiliency plan, a plan for building resilience. Um, and... If I had to, in fact, I'm going to be giving a series of talks in, um, in Naperville um, near my office uh, this fall, third Tuesdays of the month at the Alive Center, um, and it's about building resiliency in our kids and the idea that joy in life actually doesn't come from success. Happiness comes from success. Uh, happiness comes from um, uh doing well, uh, and it's something that we should encourage. We all want to do well. Success is good, but it's transient then because success is transient. 
right? So when the successes go away, the happiness goes away as well. Joy, joy is a deep abiding sense that I'm going to be okay. That regardless of whether or not I'm succeeding or failing in the moment, I'm resilient and I can handle what's coming my way. Um, joy is, is what happens when, because I know that I'll be able to handle the bomb down the road, I don't have to worry about it, so my brain doesn't need to be constantly scanning the horizon for the next mistake. I can just reside in the present, and oh, as it turns out, when my mind is present, I feel joy and peace. Um, and that's what we want to distinguish between here, is success is good, and happiness is good, and those are fun moments. Um, but the, the resilience that comes with knowing we can handle the bomb, that we don't need to be finished to get started, and we'll make mistakes, and that's okay, that's, that's where joy comes from. Emily writes, I would love to see those talks about resiliency in kids. Whatever is going on, I'm going to be okay. That we can handle the bomb. So good for kids these days. Yeah, Emily, and I think, I mean, I know one of the things we'll be talking about in those talks is how um, so much of probably the healthiest parenting is not parenting based upon managing our own anxieties, but parenting based upon the long the, the long game, right? What is gonna be best? So if I parent based upon managing my own anxieties, then I try to prevent any hardship to my kids because I don't like to see them suffer. Um, I don't like to feel like my reputation as a parent is tarnished by, oh, my kids got hurt because I wasn't watching closely enough, right? So I try to manage my own anxieties that way. Um, and so when we do that though, we protect our kids, we buffer them against any sort of hardship, disappointment, failure. Um, we try to relieve it right away if they do experience it versus going, this hurts and you can handle it. Um, you know, when my son sliced his foot in the ocean this summer, the, the constant message was, look at you, look at you. You didn't think you could handle this and look what you can handle. Good for you. Um, so yeah, we want to try to not be parenting as a way to manage our own anxieties. Instead, be, be, be parenting with a, a view of the long game. What is best for developing resiliency in our kids? So let's continue uh, by talking about this week's practice. Um, I think this one can really be a game changer. It's about accepting the parts of us that aren't fully finished and getting started anyways. All right. Week 39 practice. If we want to pursue our passions and practice the things we love, we are going to have to change our habits because most of us are in the habit of putting our lives on hold until we finish projects that can never be fully finished, especially this project frequently referred to as self-help or spiritual growth or personal tran transformation. During the months of listening, you increasingly embrace your worthiness, but worthiness is not an all or nothing proposition. In all likelihood, there are still parts of you that believe you aren't worthy enough, not finished enough to truly resurrect the passions inside of you. This week, we are going to decide which parts of your heart need to be left unfinished for now so that you can get on with actually using that heart while you're alive. Which parts of you do you still silently self-reject by telling yourself that part of you must change before anything else in your life can change? For me, that part of me was my fear of criticism. I thought that I had to develop a thicker skin before I would, could become a writer. Eventually, though, I decided I needed to start with a thin skin and let it thicken as I went. It's still thickening <laughs> because it is a heart project that never really finishes. What are you going to have to learn as you go rather than learning it ahead of time? Oftentimes, these quiet reservations will be hiding inside of two statements. I'm too impulsive. I'm too disorganized. I'm too emotional. I'm too arrogant. I'm too sinful. I'm too timid. I'm too little. I'm too fill in the blank. 
This week, during times of quiet and stillness, listen for your two statements. Afterward, on a piece of paper, in your journal, or on your phone, write down your two statements. These are your unfinished projects. These are the things that will have to be left undone in your heart if you are going to get started doing what your heart wants to do. Conclude this week's exercise by rewriting each sentence. I'm too impulsive, and I'm ready to become a public speaker. I'm too disorganized, and I'm ready to become a mother. I'm too emotional, and I'm ready to go to law school, and so on. Grant yourself the blessing of being unfinished. So I think back to our uh, conversation earlier in this episode about scarcity versus abundance, right? Um, Scarcity always has a but to it. Um, uh, Yeah, I'd like to start law school, but... Um, I'm too emotional. I need to. I need to figure out how to be more rational and logical. Or, yeah, I, I really do want to have a, a baby, but but I'm disorganized. I can't do that yet. Um, it's this scarcity mindset. I don't have enough of this, or I'm too much of this. Um, and the abundance mindset um, that we are constantly encouraged to to attend to by the voice of grace says, yeah, um, you you are that, and you're ready to do this. Yeah, yeah, you don't have it all figured out, and. Uh, you can still go ahead and get started. Um, And so that's what we want to focus on this week is this idea that, uh, yeah, that thing, that that part of your heart, it isn't totally finished. It never will be. So if you wait till it gets finished, you'll never get started. So let's just get started now. Um, So as you think about that, I wonder if any specifics come to mind for you in terms of um, sort of parts of your inner world, the way you do things that you're maybe waiting to get finished before you get started, and instead you could sort of get started with them in mid-project. Brenda writes, I'm always fighting to be productive enough to finish my priorities and to be allowed to discover my passions. I do seem to enjoy cheering, tailgating on others' passions. Not sure if that's my passion or a distraction from my own living. Um, What's interesting about that is that two things that that come to mind. Um, Actually, a bunch of things. (laughs) Um, First of all, you named one of the things that... Um, this idea of being productive enough to finish, like I've got my to-do list, and once that to-do list is done, then I'll be able to discover my passions. Um, and as adults, what we come to, I mean, there was a time when we were young when you could actually finish a to-do list, right? My kids, I give them their chore list for the day, and then it, they'll get it done pretty quickly, and then they can go play. But as adults, our to-do list is never done. There's always something more to do. We have, we have so, many much, so much more responsibilities now. So we can't wait to play. We can't wait to discover our passions until after we're done with our to-do list. We've got to carve out spaces within life to, to, to make space to listen for our passions and start practicing them. So that's one. Um, number two is that you're pointing out that we could have multiple passions. And that's, I'm very careful to say that when we were writing Lovable, I was originally using the word passion singular. Um, and uh, all the credit in the world to my editor saying, really? Everyone's just got one? And looked at myself and went, oh, no, no, I have multiple passions. So uh, maybe, maybe uh, caring for um, and encouraging the passions of others is one of your passions, but I bet you have others as well. Um, I think we all have more than one. It's important to keep in mind. Um, and number two, one of the things that I've noticed about therapists who, uh, ther- therapists, like that's one of their main jobs is to encourage the passions of others. Um, but therapists are much more likely to burn out if they haven't also discovered some of their other passions. Um, so the therapists that I see who, um, have the most, um, sort of sustainable practices, um, they're people who have their thing on the side that they do as well. You know, they play... They play in a band on the weekend. 
they write a book, they, um, you know, they do photography, they do, they have their passion projects right next to encouraging everyone else to have, have their passions lived out. So I think it's a little bit of both. Margie writes, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet, was a saying my dad hung on our front porch. Over the years, I slowly began to understand its meaning. I'm one of seven girls, and I believe it was my dad's way of telling us he didn't have it all figured out. Be patient with him and each other. Oh my goodness. The reason I'm so astounded by that, I think, Margie, is that he hung it on the front porch. Like, that is totally calling out the imposter syndrome, right? Like, it's like, it's basically saying, yeah, I don't, I don't have it figured out. And so I don't need to feel like an imposter anymore because I've told you that I don't have it figured out. <laughs> the truth is out, you know? And if we could all be doing that with each other, like just hanging a sign around our necks, I'm not finished. Um, give me feedback about ways that you think I could, could be a little more finished, but be patient in the meantime because I'll probably never totally get there, you know? Beautiful, graceful, I love it. Oh, Heather, it's so good. Um, I saw it last week you had a comment come through right at the end that said you were just chiming in at the very end. We're glad we got you with a few minutes left. Um, Heather writes, coming to the party late today, but walked into this week's practice. Immediately, I thought of my art. I love doing it, but never think it's good enough. Yep, that's it, Heather. Um, the sense that um, that we have to attain a certain quality in, in the practicing of our passions, that um, we have to get to a certain standard um, before we can sort of truly fully embrace them. I think you're you're helping us uh, name that sort of resistance that arises. Um, and uh, I, I always, I personally, I always go back to Seth Godin's definition of art. Um, it's creating something and then showing it to people. It's not creating something and working on it until it's perfect and you think it's a, achieved a certain level of quality. Art is, is creating something and then sharing it, making sure it's seen. Um, shipping it, <laughs> making it public, even when you, it may not be exactly where you want it to be. So, um, Heather, maybe that's something to think about, is how do I show more people what I'm creating, even though um, it may not be exactly the way I want it to look? Deb F. writes, kind of like compartmentalizing. Work on the passion, yet put aside the unfinished for now to be picked up later. Love that. Absolutely. Um, and that's where, you know, we go back to the months of listening and how we were cultivating an ability to be present, um, if, if we don't have that ability to be present, then all of the other tasks of life that we quote unquote should be doing will be constantly interfering with the practicing of our passions. Now, the nice thing about a passion is that, uh, it tends to bring you into flow a little bit more easily. Um, you tend to find yourself more easily engaged in the present and the doing of the passion. Um, but you know, you're right. It does require full presence with what you're doing and letting those other unfinished things sort of sit aside until you have time to come back to them. Stephanie writes, when I started my coaching practice two years ago, I thought I needed more letters of credibility after my name in order to change more, but I didn't have enough experience. Then I got this aha moment. Maybe not tons of coaching practice hours, but I have thousands of hours of life experience as a marketer, mom, friend, community leader, etc. I accepted these accomplishments in other areas to add to my perceived deficits in official coaching expertise. That perspective gave me courage to change, to charge more, and people paid for my work and benefited. Whoa, <laughs> that is awesome. I love it, Stephanie, the fact that you were able to value not just uh, the official endorsement 
you know, from authority of your, um, of your expertise, but that you were able to own your own sense of authority coming from your experience, um, and value it, um, enough to, to value it in the marketplace, uh, in the way that it deserves to be valued. That's beautiful. And so, and maybe you just named another one, right? We're waiting for some authority to sort of ordain us and say, okay, you've arrived, um, the, the powers that be say that you can now go ahead and pursue your, your passion. And instead, we need to embrace our own personal authority. Um, it's not to say that there isn't value um, in um, of having authority gatekeepers that help us to understand the best way to do things. I, I am so grateful to the gatekeepers at Zondervan who challenged me and made Lovable even better. Um, but if I had sort of waited on them to tell me to start writing, I would have never gotten started. So we have to find that balance between embracing our own personal authority and valuing um, the authority that can sort of endorse what we're doing. Rachel writes, you don't start writing good stuff. You start out writing crap and thinking it's good stuff and then gradually you get better at it. That's why I say one of the most valuable traits is persistence. It's just so easy to give up. And it sounds like that's a quote from Octavia Butler. Is that what you're saying? Um, at the top of every chapter that I wrote for Lovable, I borrowed a phrase from um, Anne Lamott, and I'm thinking about how to say this because this is a, not an explicit lyrics podcast, but um, SH first drafts, SH first drafts. Um, you know, the, the permission to have your passion first emerge from you in a very unfinished, raw, usually not even very good form. Like that's that's part of it too, is that uh, you feel like an imposter, and when you first start practicing, you look like an imposter. <laughs> um, but the the revision process, the process of learning and refining, is is so exciting, um, hard sometimes, but exciting too, as you see what it can can be starting to take shape. So yes, um, it's okay to as you as you begin to practice to 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 look like an amateur. That's okay. That's the way we all of us start. Okay, everybody, thanks again um, for what I think is just another really super helpful discussion. Um, so next week, we're going to be focused on a very another, another barrier, another form of resistance, a very counterintuitive barrier to practicing our passions, and that's our hope. <laughs> It'll be week 40 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled How Hopelessness Can Become Our Best Hope. Until then, remember, you are lovable even when you are lovably unfinished. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, Sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>